Let's pray together. Father, we, we are so grateful this morning for your grace and your love and your care for us. For these songs that we've sang today that are exalting to you, our Savior, Jesus, and you alone is all of our hope and life found. Lord, would you, would you warm our hearts once again as you have, and as we continue this morning in your word to warm our hearts toward you, Jesus, that we would love you more than all other things, and we would live our lives for you. Or wherever each person finds themselves this morning, Lord, I know that you desire to meet them. It is by no mistake that each of us are here, but by your divine appointment. So speak to us, Lord. Use me. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be... I have a cough drop in my mouth. Uh, <clears throat> it's good to be here this morning. I don't know if you, I'm guessing so, um, have kind of been watching the news and Hurricane Harvey, but my brother lives in Katy, Texas, which is right in the kind of middle of the Houston metropolitan area. And so I have this constant text messaging thread going with my entire family. And so I'm really glad to be disconnected from my phone for 30 minutes this morning up here. Um, but uh, I, I thought it would be appropriate for us this morning to pray for everyone in Texas. And I think uh, my brother, he, the, just like at 8 o'clock this morning, he said, half of the street in front of their house is covered with water and the retention pond is full and it's all running kind of beside his house. And they've only got half the rain that they're supposed to get. Um, and I think 175, this was from him, 175 places in Houston The roads are closed because they're covered. Houses are covered up to the second story in certain parts of Houston. Over a 1,000 people were rescued last night. And so it's very, very dangerous, something we ought to pray for this morning for those in Texas and then even on the coast where there was so much devastation. I would say before we pray too, if you you feel led that that God wants you to give, I believe that we should give to these things. I I would direct you to two places. Samaritan's Purse is doing a great effort and will as um, they can. And also Southern Baptist um, Disaster Relief, they they provide 80% of the meals in any disaster for the people and the victims there. And so those are two great places if you desire to give, to give to those. We are not a Southern Baptist church, but... We, we love um, many partnerships with those folks, and they're, they're great. I personally have participated with some of their relief efforts with Katrina and others, and so those would be two places. If you want to give to help those in need, you could. If you will, let's bow together this morning. <clears throat> Father, we, are, we, we come before you on, on behalf of so many that are hurting, um, that are stranded, that are in dire need right now. Lord, we pray that throughout Texas, Lord, you know where each and every person is. And Lord, we pray that, that you would divinely just lay your hand on the relief workers and the, the firemen and the police and, and everyone, Lord, who is involved in, in military, all that are involved in um, providing safety and help. Um, Lord, that you would, you would guide them and lead them in this hour, Lord, as so many are hurting 
and throughout Texas, Lord, and in so many places. Lord, we know that there's many families that are grieving today for, for loss. We pray that you would comfort them. And Lord, we just pray for your continued protection. And uh, Lord, that you would relieve this storm quickly. Um, and so, Lord, we, we lay this before you. Um, Lord, we commit to continue to pray for those in hurt and in need today. And Lord, pray that you would divinely do something in each and every life through this tragedy. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we, um, last week, we finished up the book of Mark, and now we're going to continue, we're going to kind of finish with one last sermon to wrap up the big idea of Mark. And so one last sermon to wrap up kind of this, this study that we went through for 42 years. We're going to wrap up today. Thanks for being here. You wouldn't think that I went that long through it. You're like, you're not even 42 years old. Well, I am now. So, uh... Uh, so, so as we think about this text this morning, um, and not the text, we're, we're going to be in Mark 1, 14 through 15, um, and then we'll be in Mark 10, 45, which I think are two verses that kind of summarize two sections that the book is broken into. <clears throat> but as we think about this, the, every generation, everyone in this room, every generation has a revolution amongst it. Right, and some are notorious now um, of of old, and we could talk for a long time about the revolutions of our generation. But some have said that musicians are the parakeets of culture, and what I would say is sometimes they set culture, but typically they profit off the wave that is growing within a culture. So, uh, illustrate it like this: Um, one generation it was imagine all the people. Living in harmony, right? Imagine no religion. It's easy if you try. It was a revolution of saying, how can we find peace? And really, it pointed everyone as far away from peace as you can find it. There was other songs in that time, like war. What is it good? Right? There it is. All right. So, absolutely nothing. Say it again. Okay, so, that, right? We got that. I grew up with this stuff. My dad, it was on everywhere. So, so we, we have those. <clears throat> then, then through this, like, 70s, there was these anti, anti-patriotic songs you might not know about, but <clears throat> that brought patriotic music, like Jimi Hendrix, and he did the Star Spangled Banner. Remember this? On his guitar. Um, we saw other things. Even Bruce Springsteen, right, did his patriotic songs. Then came... Kind of fast forward quickly, um, <clears throat> 90s music was this kind of massive revolution. You may have just thought, it, some of you thought it was just terrible and ungodly, but it was actually revolutionary music. There were groups like Rage Against the Machine speaking against what had happened to the Native American tribes and the genocide that happened earlier in our days. There was groups like Green Day who were terrible, but it was actually cultural revolution stuff. Some, uh, anyway... Anyway, so you just probably know it if you know it that I'm a loser baby, right? Like that was one of their songs. There was the 90s, 90s rap music that was really speaking against um, a lot of injustice that was happening in African-American neighbors, in neighborhoods in places such as Compton and other, other areas of our world. 
Then kind of move in, there was Eminem, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, right? All these six, right? All these people, they're actually speaking about revolution and it might be a sexual revolution, it might be some sort of cultural revolution, but, but all of these groups in every generation, musicians are always kind of leading the way or speaking of revolution that can happen within our culture. And so musicians, again, are the parakeets of culture. Sometimes they set culture, but typically they don't. I mean, you're probably thinking like, Ryan, where are you going with this? Like you're just... Naming people that most of you like cringe when you hear their names in music. <clears throat> I agree with them. We need a revolution. Undoubtedly, our world needs a revolution. I believe our world has always needed a revolution. We need a revolution. And that revolution is, is a deeply spiritual revolution that we need. We need a transformation at the deepest levels of who we are. And so in agreement with many of these like singers, songwriters, we need a revolution. Where I disagree with them is in the form of which we need a revolution. And so all of us at some point have rebelled and said something needs to change in culture or society, right? Anybody raise their hand who hasn't, right? right? We've all, we all have. So, so Dallas Willard said there's two things that need to happen for transformation to happen. And the first is that we take the need for transformation seriously. That, that there is a serious need in our hearts and in our lives for transformation. And transformation isn't something that starts in society, but it starts in me. And I need transformation taking the need seriously. And I, I completely agree with Dallas Willard on that. And the second thing he said is that we need to present real pathways for transformation. Real pathways for transformation. So it hits that question, we kind of mentioned it. What does it actually look like to go down a road where my heart and my life are genuinely, truly transformed? The book of Mark, I believe, and as we've studied it, has done this for us. As we look at the life of Jesus and model our life after him following the king as his disciples, he clearly lays out what this looks like in the life of a believer. And you say, well, how did he, how did he do that? Well, one of the wonderful things about our Savior is he didn't just tell us what to do. He modeled the way in which we ought to do it, and the way in which we ought to live our lives. So you could kind of break the book of Mark as we studied it into two sections, which we did. One through eight really speaks of Jesus as king, the one who reigns and rules on high, who has authority and power. And then in nine through 16, the book, the, the book of Mark transitions toward the cross, that he's going to the cross to die as a ransom for many. He's going to the cross to give his life for us. He's going to the cross to die for our sins. He's going to the cross so that we might truly be transformed. So let's look at Mark 1, 14 and 15 first, and then in a little bit we'll look at Mark 10, 45. Mark 1, 14 and 15 reads, and after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, here's what we're going to focus on today, and saying, this is the first red letters in the book of Mark, first words of Jesus that are quoted. 
and says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so here in this, we kind of see two things as Jesus is king over all things. First is that the king is the originator of the message. So he's the originator of the message. So he, he came, says, proclaiming the gospel of God. And so he's, he's proclaiming the gospel, right? He is the gospel of God. God is the originator of the gospel. He is the one who has instituted his divine plan. The time is fulfilled, which this word for time is not chronos, which is usually used, kind of to use in general sense of time, but this is kairos, which is this word that means this explicit, epic moment in time. Jesus entering into our world was this excessively epic, momentous moment in all time and eternity where Jesus entered the scene. And so Mark is going to kind of say, this is different than just this kind of event. This is epic. This is, this is massive in proportion. There's nothing like it. And then we, we see that he's the originator of the message, the message and the king sets the terms. So he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Literally meaning that the kingdom of God, it's present, it's readily available. All people can have it. It's it's at hand, it's here. The the kingdom of God is available, it's accessible. And so he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Now, these words are important. Repent, to turn away from something to something, to reverse course in life, to repent, to turn. And then believe is to to place complete trust and reliance in something, in this, speaking of the gospel to Jesus. Now, these are not important about this, repent and believe. This isn't to repent or believe, right? And so, illustrate, I'm not, you know, English teachers, you could do better at this. I'm going to help you here for a second. So, works like this. It would be like Jack and Jill went up the hill, right? It doesn't say Jack or Jill went up the hill because if it's Jack and Jill, they both go up the hill, right? It's both. It's equal weight, right, in the two of them. And so repent and believe means that it's not repent or believe. These are both things that have to happen in order for us to receive the gospel. In order for us to receive Jesus, there has to be Repentance. Now, repentance is something that we don't like very much. Why don't we like repentance? Well, simple like this. I see it in my children all the time, which is probably just I do it in more adult ways, right? But we don't like to admit that we're wrong. Raise your hand if you're sitting beside someone that doesn't like to admit they're wrong. (laughs) Pat, that is so mean. That's not even true. Uh, And so, uh, uh, (laughs) love you guys. And so, so, so repent and believe. Repentance is a, is a challenging thing for us. <clears throat> and repentance isn't saying, it is not saying, my bad. It's not repentance. My bad is like, oh, I screwed up, everybody screws up. That's not, that's not repentance. Repentance is a much deeper word. That is, that is almost, uh, <clears throat> to, to deal with repentance in that way is, is borderline blasphemous in, in a way. It's trite to deal with it just like, oh, my bad. Everybody does bad. Repentance is this word that is this 
thing that happens when I sin that causes me deep grief. And so repentance in initially coming into the faith, it's many old writers would talk about this as they went to a gospel rally, right, in the 1800s, one of the great awakenings, and they went to a gospel rally, and they heard the truth of the gospel, and they went for four hours out into the woods, and they cried out to God because they could not believe they had sinned against him. And then they came back, and they were new people, and something had deeply changed in them because they'd actually gone through a process of saying, I have sinned against you, God, and it kills me inside what I have done to you. Repentance is this deeper thing where I, I recognize that I have, I've rebelled against the holy God. And because I've rebelled against him, there had to be a payment for me. And that payment was his very own son on the cross. And repentance is saying, God, forgive me for what I have done. And it goes so much deeper than out of my head and out of my mouth but it almost goes to our bones of my rebellion against him. But repentance isn't just something that happens when we come to faith. Repentance is something that happens as we perpetually live in the faith of recognizing those moments when I have disobeyed God. And so I think about the Christian life like this now, and I think I am on good ground here. So Many times in scripture, the Christian life is spoken of a path, right? Of a, of a road, the narrow road. His word is a light unto my path. And so there's an old book. It's called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And he wrote this book about this man who was wandering, kind of who was going through life and entered a narrow gate and went through his life. And it talks about this struggle and journey kind of through allegory of this man's life. I think the Christian life is a lot like that. And so it, it works like this, so to illustrate. So the Christian life is, is it's a path. And so I walk down the path, and the path isn't always very straight, is it? It's, there's ups and there's downs, right? For me, there was ups of having children in 2014 and my brother dying in 2015, 2016. It was hard. Couldn't stop it couldn't control it, but there was emotions and things inside of my heart that I had to walk through in that season. There was times I felt anger. There was times I felt sadness. There was times I felt wonderful. There was times I felt peace. And those are real things, right? Anybody else with me? Like, these are real things in our life. And the Christian life is a path, and we walk down the path, and there's, there's peaks and there's valleys. There's ups and there's downs. And there's moments in my life where I look over here, and I say, I really want cash, and I want cash more than I want God. And I know that if I do this, this will disobey God, but we're going to do it. And I get right here and I think, what are you doing, Ryan? This is completely against the will of God in your life. His word is a lamp into my path. My flesh has become a lamp into my path and a light into my way and not, not his word anymore. And I recognize it. And I say, oh, Father, forgive me. I, I've, I've diverted from your way. Help me to walk in your way. And I begin to turn. And I begin to walk down. Sorry, Diane. And I walk up and down, right, the valleys and the peaks and the, the, the way of life. And then all of a sudden I see something else. I want to go after it. And sometimes we do and we grab it. And after we've grabbed it for a while, we say, I'm so empty. God, my flesh has taken over. I've been tempted. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. 
And I begin to move back toward his ways through repentance and saying, God, I've diverted from your way. I've, I've not obeyed your path. Thank you for revealing this to me. And I begin to walk down his path and down his way. The Christian life and repentance looks like this moment in my life where I observe what is going on. I reflect upon it. I, I talk about it with others and I realize, oh my goodness, I've sinned against you, God. God, help me to learn what it means to walk in your ways. Give me accountability with those around me. Help me to act out upon my faith. Help me to stop living against you. And so repentance and belief, it's this this thing that in, it, it brings me into the faith and it sustains me in the faith. And that's why Jesus is going to say, repent and believe. And this is the core, core, core of the message of Jesus and the message of the Christian faith. Repent and believe, to turn away, to reverse course, to believe, to put complete trust and reliance in him. And again, this is not an or statement. You can repent or believe. They are inherently connected of equal value to one another. And they begin the faith and they sustain the faith. And one day he will free us from ourselves, and we will no longer have to repent, but we will just believe forever because we will see him face to face. But until then, repentance and belief, repentance isn't just for really, really bad people. Well, maybe it is because we all are. It's for all of us. It's normative. It's the way of the Christian life. So so we we see this. So the king sets the term, the kingdom of God's hand, repent and believe. And then the gospel, right? This is the the, the gospel. Um, Repent and believe in the gospel. So the good news, the historical news that brings great joy. This is literally the word... Gospel was not just a word used back then to express um, the Christian faith like it is today. The gospel was really good news, and what good news looked like is your sons and daughters, your sons and husbands have been off at war. You don't know what's happening. There's no cell phones on the battlefield, right? There's horses that bring you news, and the herald that would come back in town And the good news was your sons and husbands are alive. And so that would have been a a gospel bearer, right? Someone who's bringing good news, a herald that was bringing good news. And so when they use this word, this wasn't just inherently Christian like it is today. It was good news, historical news that brings great joy. And this is what separates the Christian faith from all other world religions. Good news is what separates the Christian faith from all other world religions. And the way it separates us is all world religions give you good advice and how to live a life and hopeful that you get to a higher way, to a higher being, to a higher something. So good advice looks like this. <clears throat> so imagine if someone came up to you today and gave you good advice. They came up to you and said, hey, you should reconsider what you're wearing today, Right? Some of you may take that initially, some of you, probably not all of you, and be like, I am deeply offended by that. I think I look very nice today, right? Or others of you, maybe in the long term, would say, you know what? They were right. I shouldn't have wore what I wore today. So it was good advice. It could be bad advice or good advice, but we receive advice, but different. Did did anybody, like, struggle with receiving advice? Is that hard sometimes for you, right? Especially from people that you didn't ask it from, right? Right? 
And so advice, that's, that's advice giving. But imagine this, that someone came in the room today and gave good news of historic proportion and said, your son who has cancer, it's gone. It's gone. It's no longer there. We did another scan. It's completely gone. We don't know what happened. What is that? It's good news. And we go, oh my goodness, we're crying and we can't believe this has happened. What we thought was eminently terrible is now, is now good. And this is what is separates the Christian faith is because the Christian faith has good news, not good advice. The good news, what it does is it takes a weight away. It takes a burden away and it is lifted up from us. And this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is simply that all was well in the garden and Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in their rebellion against God, sin and death and evil and wickedness entered this world. And it has snowballed ever since in so many horrific ways, historically, sociologically, psychologically, every logically you can think of. And we are deeply broken at these levels. Deeply broken to the point where we walk into a room, we say, I wonder what they think of me. I wonder how they think I look. And we get neurotic in our heads. We have these crazy thoughts that we don't want anyone to know because they just pop into our head and it's super weird. Right? Anybody here? No? If you're honest. All of these things, there's this deep brokenness inside of us in this world. And it's from our our, our sin nature and our own personal rebellion against God. And God knew this. And he says, I love you so much that I am going to send my son to atone to pay for your sins on the cross. And his payment will be so that you don't have to pay. And his payment was horrific and torturous. See, we need, we want rescue and our rescue has come. The good news is you don't have to die in your sin. You don't have to any longer be lived as a slave, as a slave to the sin that held you so tightly, but you can be set free in Jesus. And that when your time comes, that you can see your God face to face and not face eternal separation from him. It is the greatest news in the whole world, what Jesus has done for us. But see, there is a transaction that must happen, though, to receive this good news. In receiving the good news, we must repent and say, Father, forgive me for what I have done against you. And I believe I am going to place my complete reliance and trust in you because you are the only one I know who is reliable and trustworthy. So this is is trusting in the, the full and completed work of Jesus and moving into a covenant relationship with him where he says that I am... I am his, and I say, I, say to, I say to him, I am yours, and he says to me that you are mine. And we are now in a covenant relationship in which nothing can separate me from the love of God when I turn in genuine repentance and faith to my God. And now I commit to live my life 
in complete devotion to him. And when I, when I, when I move and when I waver, asking God to reveal it to me that I might not do anything to dishonor the one I love. This is kind of a, the Christian faith. And so Jesus, in this, he's proclaiming, right? He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the core of the message of Jesus. And it's really the core of the first half of the book of Mark. And second, Mark 10, 45, read, says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what this was speaking of, Jesus was turning upside down the system. The highest became the lowest. The the disciples, as they heard this, they were thinking of a position of privilege and power. And Jesus uses words like, diakonos and doulos, and he says these deep words that they would have heard as a slave, as a servant, and it was this lower positioning underneath what they thought they were going to rise up to. I think that's why they were very confused by his message. But Jesus was clear. He didn't kind of trick them by this. He was saying it. He said in Mark 8, 31, just listen, it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed And after three days, rise again. Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And right before this, in Mark 10, 32 through 34, it says, and and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus was explicit about what would happen to him, and almost in his teachings, what we see in the book, in the book of Mark is that they are progressive in nature of a growing revelation of what it is that's going to happen to Jesus. And then in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to die as a ransom for many. So let's look at that kind of section. It says, Son of Man. The Son of Man, he pre-existed before birth. It's kind of that, that phrase, Son of Man. Jesus pre-existed. The Eternal One stepped down. He did not come to serve, but to be, he did not come to be served, but to serve. He had every right to be honored and served, yet did not exercise that privilege. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 kind of reveals this to us. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus inverts the leadership structure. The highest becomes the lowest. The one who, is, who, is, who has every right, every right to be the highest has stepped down lower. And so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It's not all. And it says to give his life 
his, to give his life. This was a willful act of Jesus, a, a substitutionary sacrifice as a ransom. The word, the word literally is lutron in the Greek, to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. And so when they would have heard this phrase that Jesus said, that he came as a ransom, that he was going to, to buy the freedom of a slave or prisoner, to ensure the freedom of someone. And he did. Those who were slaves to sin, he came to free them from their slavery. Have you ever considered yourself a man or a woman who's a slave to sin and who is being rescued, believer, from the person of Jesus? If you've never met Jesus, the scripture says that we are slaves to sin. Doesn't mean that we necessarily look bad or are bad people in the eyes of society. Very good people are still slaves to sin because the deepest slavery you possess is a slave to self. Wanting our way, wanting our rights. The deepest places of slavery is in our pride. Willing to say I'm wrong, willing to not have my way, our pride. We are all slaves of sin Entrapped, Jesus came, right? Son of man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For many, for, instead of, in place of, many, effectually for all who will repent and believe. It's a pretty important phrase. Effectually for all who will repent and believe. See, all real love is substitutionary sacrifice. All real love is substitutionary sacrifice, and we see it in our families. We see it around us in our world and in our life. Substitutionary sacrifice looks like this. I am going to take on less so that you might have more. Think about it, my dad, when I was growing up, we had a, we had a farm, and the, the, the markets crashed in the mid-90s, and um, for us, being a small farmer, dad couldn't make it anymore. And we'd had our farm for a while, and one of the things that happens on farms is animals get diseases, and if one gets a disease, it kind of contaminates everything, and we'd had some of that happen. And so, uh, so it says the herd became smaller, and we were unable to continue to provide in that way. So my dad sold everything that we had, all that he'd done his whole life, and he got a job at a steel factory. In that steel factory, when I was a, a, a junior and senior in high school, playing a different sport every night of the week, doing all the activities that I'd always done, my dad, every morning, and it sounds maybe simple, but to me, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. We didn't have a lot of money. And every morning, there would be at least $5 in my wallet. My dad would work 11 to 7. I would leave about 8 o'clock, and sometimes I'd see him, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I wouldn't even notice it, but my dad would put it, bill in my wallet because he said, I don't want you to suffer, right? I don't want you to go without in these last years you're at home, right? This really gracious act of love for my father that that was sacrificial. He had less so that I might have more. It's true and genuine love. These are the stories, right, that you watch on TV. This is every favorite Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Somebody takes on something that so that, so that someone else can have something. These are stories that deeply resonate with us, and the reason they are is because they're gospel in nature. 
Because we long, we need substitutionary atonement. We, 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 we need someone to come in our place to take our sin because we can't get rid of it on our own. All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. And Jesus was a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us. And so all through this series, we've <clears throat> had these titles, and they've been disciple, 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 and there might be two words after that because I'm not very creative probably. But, but anyway, these have been how we've done this series. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you would be considered a disciple of Jesus. If you've given your life a, a learner of his ways, right? The disciple, like the key word is learner, that, that I'm being taught to live in a certain way. I'm being educated, right, into this. And so disciple, and we titled today, Following the King. And the is a really important article on that phrase because there's only one. I am not, you are not, he is. I am not the head of this church. The elders are not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of this church, the king. There's only one, and he is it. But there's some other words that I think would be helpful for us to put on this that would be, make, make, the, make this phrase a little more possessive because Jesus isn't just the king, but he's a king in which we can possess, in which we can have. And so we can say phrases like, Jesus is my king. For you this morning, just in your own head, can you say that? Jesus is my king. With all integrity and all honesty and all the repentance and belief stuff that I've talked about, walking on Diane's piano bench, all that stuff, can you, without a shadow of doubt, say, Jesus is my king. I love him. He is the one who came and bled and died for my sins on the cross. I want to honor him and live for him and glorify him with my life. Jesus is my king. And I'll tell you, church, what we need is some revival in this phrase. Jesus is my king. I own it. It's mine. My affections are for him. I love my king, and I want to follow him. But there's another Another possessive article we could put on this, saying Jesus is our king. This isn't something that I'm in alone. He's my king, but he's our king. And I love looking at, man, this will get a pastor. I love looking out the room and seeing people and faces, battles we fought through, things that we've done, that I know that he is our king. I know that I'm not alone. I know that, that when struggles and trials and hardships come, that I have a king and so don't my brothers and sisters and together we can get through this together. We as a church, the revolution I believe that must come is that we must solidify that Jesus Christ is the king. Done. He is the one who brings transformation. He is the one that brings revolution. He is the one this world needs from coast to coast, around the globe. Every person, every tribe, every nation needs Jesus, the king. And then we need to move into this place where we say, not only do they need him, I desperately need him. He is my king, and I love my king. 
And in the day-to-day, wherever I go, whatever I do, I want to live in worship to my king. And together, maybe, as we follow Jesus, our king, God might do something far beyond anything we could ever think or imagine as we do this together. The revolution that must happen in our lives is coming to a place where we all say, Jesus is the king, he is my king, he is our king. If he's not your king today, might you turn in repentance to him, place your faith in him, and have your burdens lifted. You no longer have to be a slave to your sin. Jesus can free you today. If you're in a place today where when I said Jesus is my king and you realized you've not been living that way, you've been wandering off the path in which he has laid out for you today, might you turn in repentance today and say, Jesus, you are my king. Lead me in your way everlasting. Jesus is our king, maybe today. You have not acted very well as a brother or sister to those around you. Leave it at the cross, lay it over to Jesus, and commit to be a part of the family of God, arm in arm with your brothers and sisters. Might we follow our king, might we never lose sight of the cross, and might Jesus always be the king, my king, and our king. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the book of Mark. We're so grateful for what you've taught us. Lord, we know there needs to be a revolution. Lord, every time, every society, every culture, Lord, has seen it at some point or time, typically all the time. Jesus, we believe that you brought the revolution we need. We believe that you are the king. Lord, I thank you for being my king. I thank you for being our king. Lord, would you help those who have never trusted in you that this morning they might repent and believe and place their full confidence and trust in you. Might they say to you, Jesus, forgive me for what I've done against you. Lead me. to live for you and to love for you in all I do. For those who have placed their faith this morning, Lord, whatever you need to do in their lives to help them commit to whatever you've said, or would you do so? Jesus, we do believe that you are the king and we thank you for the cross. We love you, Lord. Help us to respond well as we sing this last song. As I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. If you'll stand this morning, we're going to sing this last song. Whatever God's led you to do, maybe come down the altars, lay down, repent, believe. If you want to talk about knowing Jesus, I'm down front. Might we not leave here without response today?